I pray that those words that we just sang would ring true for us now, that you would be our vision, that you would help us see, that you and you only would be first in our hearts. Father, we have a lot of ground to cover in your word today, some hard things to wrestle with, and we need your help. We need your help that our ears might hear what you have for us, and I need your help that my mouth might say only that which is helpful and clear. So I just ask that you would be with us and that you would teach us, Holy Spirit, we ask in your name, Jesus, amen. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. We've been working through the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, and we are up to chapter two. So I say chapter two because the first five books are really one book called the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they all tell one big message of God's plan to save the world through the serpent-conquering Son of God and seed. Who's the seed? The offspring of the woman. Eventually, we find out it's Jesus Christ. So, one story, and we are on chapter 2, which is the book of Exodus, and we're on uh, the the 6th chapter, verse 28, all the way up to chapter 11. So again, lots of ground to cover. Chapter 6, verse 28, all the way to the end of chapter 11. I'll start with a a question. I'm not looking for an answer, but just think about it. If you were to ask the average American on the street, um, who is God, what do you think they might say? Some might say, he's the creator, the creator of life, of everything. Uh, Some who say he's the creator, they might believe he's intimately involved in all of life. But others might say, well, he's the creator, but he's kind of taken a back seat now and uh, left things up to us and to evolution and um, free will. Other Americans might say something far more mystical, like uh, God is, who is God? Well, God is in everything. Or everything is God. You are God. I am God. Creation is God. Maybe they say something like, God is energy. And you want positive energy. So side with God, not negative energy. That comes from Satan. So, yay God, right? So, you know, there's all kinds of ideas out on the street about who God is. And we could go on and on, right? Now, if you ask the average person in the country of India today, who is God? He or she might look at you and be like, what? There's millions of them. There's millions. 33 million, to be exact, in Hinduism. And so, this question, you might get different answers depending on where you go. Well, if you were to travel back in time to ancient Egypt and ask the average Egyptian walking on the street, or the average Israelite, in fact, walking around in ancient Egypt as a slave, who is God? they would most likely have given you a very similar response to the, in, the person in India. Who is God? There's dozens of gods. Hundreds of gods. They're everywhere. There's gods that we, you know, gods in creation. There's gods. Pharaoh is God. We talked about that last week. They believed their ruler was God. So um, everybody believed in 
multiple deities back then. That was just the ancient world. Uh, You might have believed, though, that one of all those gods was like the strongest. Of course, you want him on your team, right? Like, Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. He's like the big God. Um, you, You know, you want him on your team. But... Back in the day, even if the Israelites might have believed that Yahweh was the biggest and the toughest of the gods, they also believed there was a lot of other gods too. Gods that you wanted to stay on the good side of. Like you didn't want to tick them off. So even though Yahweh was supposedly the strongest god, somehow idols of all these other gods kept sneaking their way back into Israelite tents. And you see this again and again. Like, oh, Yahweh is God, yeah, but... We want to hedge our bets. We want to make sure all our bases are covered. And so even though the word of God says that Yahweh alone is God, hmm, we're not so sure. Now as Moses is writing down the Torah that we've been working through, Genesis and now we're in Exodus, Moses is designing his words under the guidance of Yahweh's spirit to be a head-on assault against this kind of thinking, against the Israelite temptation to cover all their religious bases, to limp between serving Yahweh and serving other gods. No, Moses is saying, how foolish. If you've got Yahweh, it covers all the bases. Yahweh owns the whole ball field. The world is his. You don't need to hedge your bets. So back in Genesis, Moses tells us, God is the creator of everyone and everything. There are no other gods besides him. This means that any other God that someone might worship is a God created by human imagination and human hands. As the psalmist writes in Psalm 96 verse 5, he says, For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord, but Yahweh, made the heavens. He gets that straight from Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yahweh is no territorial, tribal deity you know, you see a battle in, in the, the book of Joshua where, you know, they, they think that they're going to do better against the Israelites in the hills because their God is the God of the hills, right? But Yahweh is the God of the plain or something like tribal, like territorial deities. Like, oh, we can't fight Yahweh on your turf, but we can win on our turf. No, God owns the whole world. And that's Moses' point as he's writing. And it's essential to grasp that today because in ancient Egypt, we talked about this last week, uh, the land was full of beliefs in false gods. And Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he even viewed himself as a divine human figure. Fully God, fully man. In other words, he saw himself as the firstborn son of the gods. And thus he's a go-between, an intermediary of sorts for his subjects and the gods of the heavens. So Pharaoh represents the rule of the gods on earth. That's what the Egyptians believed. And as go-between, it was Pharaoh's job, this human God-man person, it was his job to maintain the order of the created world and to work for the flourishing of life in his land. It's to this Pharaoh, this puny god that we talked about last week, that Moses and Aaron go and demand that he let Yahweh's people go free to worship him in the wilderness for three days. Now, if you were here last week, you may remember um, Pharaoh's response when they say, let my people go. Yahweh wants you to let the people go. Well, Pharaoh's response is, 
In Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, you could look at that if you have a Bible open. Exodus 5, verse 2, Pharaoh says, Who is Yahweh that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and I will not let Israel go. Those words hang like a banner over the whole rest of the book. I don't know Yahweh. Well, buckle up, buddy, because you're about to learn who he is. You're about to know the Lord. Pharaoh's greatest problem is that he doesn't know the Lord. And that's Israel's greatest problem. And it is the greatest problem of every human ever born. We aren't born knowing God because of Adam's sin in the garden years ago, which we'll look at later today. We're born without the knowledge of God. And we desperately need to know the Lord because He is the giver of life, both physical and eternal life. We desperately need to know God. To know Him is what we were made for. And that's the driving purpose of the Exodus and the way it happened, the reason it happened like it did. So we're going to look this morning again at Exodus chapter 6, verse 28, all the way up through 11, verse 10. Now, the sermon could just be me reading those verses and we'd be done, right? But I'm going to try to summarize as we go along. And we're going to look at this passage in three steps. First, we're going to look at the hardening of Pharaoh. Second, we're going to talk about the decreation of Egypt. The decreation of Egypt. And third, we're going to look at the death of the firstborn sons. So let's start with the hardening of Pharaoh. If you have Exodus open, look at chapter 4, verse 21. We looked at it a couple weeks ago. There we read these kind of startling words. Yahweh said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Mind you, this is before Pharaoh, Moses had even gone to Pharaoh. It's before any part of the story has happened. And God's already telling Moses that he is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. A lot of ink has been spilled over the years trying to figure out what is going on here. Like, Why would Yahweh do this? Why would he harden a heart? Doesn't he want his people to be released? Wouldn't he want Pharaoh's heart to be soft? Sure, you can go. Oh, Yahweh, I'll obey him. Well, here's the first thing to notice about this passage as we wrestle with it. First, God's hardening is specific in its focus. What I mean by this is that if you look at verse 21, it says that the hardening is specifically a hardening towards letting the people go. In other words, God's not saying here in Exodus 4.21, I'm going to make Pharaoh be an evil person. I'm not going to make him have a hard heart. No, Pharaoh, as we've already seen, does not need any help in that department. Right? Pharaoh is obviously allied with the offspring of Satan, the crafty snake in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the the seed of the snake who persecute the children of the promise. Like Cain, like Lamech, like Nimrod, Pharaoh is a murderer, a servant of the great lie of Satan, that humans can be like God. So So Pharaoh's father, in this story, he ultimately is the devil. Pharaoh is a murderer. Just like Satan, who wanted Adam and Eve to sin. Why? So that they would die. Pharaoh 
is murdering the babies of Israel. He's brutally oppressing them. He has a hard heart already. But God is hardening Pharaoh's heart in a specific way so that he's going to refuse to obey specific commands from Yahweh, commands to let Israel go. The second thing to notice is that God's hardening, it causes Pharaoh's own hardening of his own heart. That's where things get a little bit tricky to wrap our minds around. But we've got to look at the Bible's words and and wrestle with them as Christians. We're stuck with the whole thing. It's God's word. It's good for us. So it says in 421, God's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And then we see Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And even if we're we're not able to understand exactly how all this fits together, we still must wrestle and believe it at the end of the day. So this is how the narrative goes, right? At the beginning, God says in 421, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Then that's exactly what happens in 5 verse 1 to 3. When Moses tells Pharaoh to let the people go, Pharaoh refuses. His heart is hard. And as the story goes on, all the way up through chapter 14, again and again and again, Pharaoh's heart becomes hard. Sometimes the text says that the Lord hardens it. Sometimes it simply says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Sometimes, a couple times, we're told Pharaoh hardens his own heart. So, who is it, right? Is it Pharaoh hardening his heart, or is it the Lord hardening his heart? And here we, like I mentioned, we're delving into a bit of a tension, biblically speaking. Two things that are both true, even though we can't quite understand how they fit. The answer is, who is it? God hardening or Pharaoh hardening? The answer is yes. Somehow, God is standing behind Pharaoh's hard heart in a way that makes God not morally responsible for Pharaoh's evil actions, and yet, Pharaoh's actions are still somehow accomplishing God's plan in the Exodus. So here's, in other words, Pharaoh is going to be punished for his own hardness, and he hardens his own heart, and yet somehow God has sovereignly orchestrated this plan for the hardening of Pharaoh, and it fits into the plan that he has in Exodus. Again, we might not be able to put how this all works together exactly, but we do believe it. It's here. And there's dozens of other places in the Bible where you can kind of see that same tension at work. Whose plan was the cross of Christ? God's plan. Whose plan was the cross of Christ? The Pharisees' plan. (laughs) They're trying to kill Jesus. They're doing what they want to do, and yet they're doing what God wants to do. And they're guilty for it, not God, even though it's God's plan. God planned the death of Christ for the salvation of the world and the defeat of evil, and and yet the Pharisees are carrying it out. So this is the same type of tension. We could go again and again and again throughout the Bible, showing these two tensions, that God is sovereign over all things, and yet somehow we are still responsible for the choices we make, the free choices that we make. And so Pharaoh, somehow God is behind this hardening, again, of an already hard heart. It's judgment upon Pharaoh that we're seeing. Judgment upon an evil man. And God has a lesson to teach him a purpose. And that's the third thing to see here. This third thing to see, the purpose. And it's twofold. A twofold purpose. First, in Exodus 12, verse 12, God says, I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. The purpose of the hardening of Pharaoh and of sending all the plagues on Egypt was for all these so-called gods of Egypt to be judged. And we're going to see that, including Pharaoh himself, this puny little god. This little God-man who thinks he rules the world. In fact, the hardening itself, right, is is judgment. Second, 
the purpose, the second purpose, was that in and through these acts of judgment on Egypt and on their false gods, Yahweh alone would be seen and known by all to be the one true God. So as we work through, in a minute, these different parts of the story, it should become quite clear. Pharaoh is an evil human. He's contending with God as the rightful ruler of the world, disobeying the words that gave him life. And God's plan is to judge Pharaoh by hardening his heart enough to ensure that Pharaoh is going to drink the full cup of judgment without ducking out. Pharaoh's going to stand there. God stiffens his spine just enough so that he can take all ten plagues without saying, Enough! Enough! And, and you see this happening again and again in the story. He starts to buckle. And then when things get better, because he listens, he pretends to listen to God's word, he like feigns obedience to God's word, like, Oh, sure, you can go, you can go. And then as soon as things get better, because obedience always brings life and restoration, and as soon as his feigned obedience brings some sort of restoration, he hardens his heart again. No, you can't go. And he does that until Egypt is totally undone. And it is clear to the world, Yahweh alone is the only God. There is no other. So now we're going to jump into the story and look at the second point this morning. The total decreation of Egypt. Have you ever heard the phrase, the sky is falling? The sky is falling. I think there's like a a book called Henny Penny or something where she sees the sky fall and the kids love it, right? And it's kind of one of those books that's like super repetitive and they want you to read it all the time, right? Um, Henny Penny, Lucky Ducky. (laughs) The sky is falling. Well, it's because an acorn fell on her head and, and she thought that the sky was falling. What does that phrase mean? It means the world is coming apart. The world is coming undone. Decreation is happening. Everything created is coming unglued. And that's what we see here in the Exodus. The ten plagues that are about to come upon the nation of Egypt, they're brought about by God, the creator of heaven and earth, to show everyone that Yahweh, and not Pharaoh, and not any of these so-called gods of Egypt, Yahweh alone is the maker of heaven and earth. And he's the one who ultimately controls all of nature. And in, in fact, the, these ten plagues, you ever wonder, like, why are there ten? Not eleven, not fourteen. Why, what's the significance of ten? Well, they, in Genesis chapter one, there are ten speech acts which God uses to create the world. Seven days of creation, but ten specific declarations of God. Speech, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. The world is created with ten speech acts. It is decreated for Egypt with ten decrees of God's word. The God who made heaven and earth, the sky and the sea, who separated light from darkness, and on and on. He shows Pharaoh who he is, that he has the power to unmake the world that he has made. And so now in Exodus chapter 7, we come to the first plague. The Nile River turns to blood. I'll read it, starting at verse 14 here. Then the Lord said to Moses, this is the first, okay, the first of the ten speech acts of decreation. Then the Lord said, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. This is what Yahweh says. 
By this you will know that I am the Lord. Remember? We keep, we keep saying, this is the point of all of this. By this you will know that I am the Lord, or literally Yahweh. Again, he says, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink, and the Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. This first plague, it's hugely significant. The Nile was and still is for Egypt at the very heart of their life. Every year, the Nile floods its banks. It deposits rich nutrients. You could call it silt all along the banks. And then the farmers come and they plant their crops along the banks of the Nile. And it's also the main water source. It's a huge travel route going from northern and southern Egypt. And it's a huge food source, as a source of fish. It's so central to Egypt's life that the Egyptians actually deified the Nile River as a god called Hapi, or Happy. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce that, H-I-P-I, the god Happy. And yet now this river becomes blood. Why blood? This also is significant. Pharaoh, the god of Egypt, had once filled the Nile with the blood of Israel's infant sons. And now the Nile literally turns to blood. And this so-called God of Egypt, he can't do anything about it. And yet, here's the text is very interesting. Pharaoh's magicians, these evil sorcerers, somehow they're able to get some fresh water by digging along the banks of the Nile. And they are able with their dark arts to turn it into blood. And Pharaoh, he ignores the sign. Well, they can do it too, so I'm not going to listen to you. And the next plague comes, verses 1 to 7. God sends frogs all over the land of Egypt. Frogs also were a sacred animal to the Egyptians. The goddess Heket had a frog's head and was responsible to, for fertility, according to the Egyptians. And now you've got very fertile frogs. They're everywhere. They're filling the houses and the stores and the marketplaces. They're in the bedrooms. They're in the closets. I mean, I can't imagine going to get my breakfast cereal in the morning, opening to get a bowl, and frogs come piling out. I mean, this is how bad it was. They were everywhere. So, Pharaoh, in verse 8, asks Moses and Aaron, Oh, come pray to Yahweh to take away all these frogs. Like, get rid of them. And, and so, uh, and then I'll let your people go, right? He fakes. He's faking. I'll, I'll obey God. I'll obey his word. Just take them away. And to prove that the frogs didn't just disappear by chance... Okay, like he wakes up in the morning, they're gone. Oh, I guess we just got lucky. Moses and Aaron say, name a day, name a time for these frogs to disappear to show that Yahweh did it. And so Pharaoh's like, well, how about tomorrow morning? I don't know why he said like right now. That's what I would have said. But how about tomorrow morning, right? And so sure enough, the very next morning, all the frogs are gone and they're piled in great heaps from one end of Egypt to the other and they stinked. Stunk, proper verb there, stunk horribly as they um, baked in the sun. But Pharaoh hardened his heart again. He wouldn't let the people go, just as the Lord had said. So now you get round three. Put your hand up. Who here likes black flies? They're the bane of turkey season, right, Landon? Going through, trying to 
hunt turkeys, you can't even concentrate because you've got flies, black flies all over you. Now, in Egypt, okay, can you imagine black flies from one end of Egypt to the other in clouds like you've never seen before? Moses takes his staff, the staff of judgment, and strikes the dust, and all the dust all over Egypt becomes black, black flies. It's just crazy. And then the magicians, Pharaoh's dark um, sorcerers, they try to replicate it, and they can't. Notice their words in verse 19, chapter 8, to Pharaoh. The magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. Even they recognize. Okay, we give up. We can't do it. They don't say Yahweh, which is interesting, but they know that it's a divine thing going on. There's a God involved. They still haven't come to know the Lord, Yahweh, but they're recognizing this is beyond them. Yet Pharaoh's heart is still hard, just as the Lord said. He wouldn't let the people go. So then you get flies filling the land of Egypt, but not the land of Goshen, where Israel was living. And while the flies swarmed over Pharaoh, he tried to negotiate a bit with Moses and Aaron, and ultimately with God's word. He says, you can take a break from your work. You can sacrifice. Like, I'll give you a holiday, but you have to stay here. You can't leave. So, again, he's, he's trying to negotiate. And then Pharaoh and Aaron, I mean, Moses and Aaron, they insist, no, we have to leave. We have to leave. That's God's word. That's what God wants us to do. And so Pharaoh's like, oh, okay, I'll let you, you can do it. So he pretends submission to God's word. And even pretend submission brings restoration. He obeys the word. Egypt is restored. The flies go away. And his heart is hardened again. Just as was the case with Adam and Eve, disobedience to God's word causes creation to come unglued, but obedience brings restoration. Right? I'll say that again. This is what we're seeing here. You disobey God's word, creation comes unglued. You obey God's word, it's restored. Pharaoh pretends, of course, to obey God's word, but the point should be clear. And after Moses prayed, the flies went away, his heart's hard, another plague comes. Right on the heels of plague number four comes plague, plague five. And it's a massive sickness that causes all of Egypt, Egypt's livestock to die. And so you've got piles of dead goats and cows and chickens all over. And yet none of Israel's livestock died. And still Pharaoh's heart is hard. He would not let Israel go. Next, they get boils. Painful boils on all the Egyptians. And they're so bad, these these Egyptian guys, they can't even stand up when Moses and Aaron come before them. They come to see them again. And yet still, even with the boils, Pharaoh's heart is hard. Then you get plague seven. There's hail. Look at chapter 9, verses 13 to 16, if you would. This is what Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people. You thought it was bad before? There's worse is coming. And here's the purpose in verse 14. So that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I, So God could have wiped them all out, but he didn't. Why? Verse 16. 
I've raised you up for this very purpose. That I might show you my power. That my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Those last words are essential for understanding this. That's the purpose of the hardening. It's the purpose of the plagues. It's the purpose of Pharaoh's very existence. I raised you up, Pharaoh, for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God is the only God, the living God, and he is a God who is worthy of being known. He deserves to be known and worshipped for who he is and he alone. There is no other. And then the hail comes. It destroys everything. But those who feared Yahweh in Egypt brought their servants inside, as well as their animals that they must have acquired since the previous plague. And though everyone's crops were shredded by the hail, those who heeded God's word, they did not die. They were spared. But look at verse 21. Those who ignored the word of Yahweh left their slaves and livestock in the field. Ignoring God's word, it's the path of death, the path of suffering, both then and now, both for Adam in the garden and for us today. And now look at 9, 27 to 30. Now you think Pharaoh maybe is starting to get it, at least for a minute. This time I have sinned, Pharaoh said to them. Yahweh is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to Yahweh, for we have had enough of thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Moses replied, When I go out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to Yahweh. The thunder will stop. There will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is Yahweh's. But I know that you and your officials still do not fear Yahweh, the Lord God. And sure enough, As soon as the thunder and hail stops and the sun comes out, Pharaoh and his officials, they hardened their hearts and they wouldn't let the people go. And although the hail had utterly destroyed all their flax and their barley crop, the, the wheat and the pelt crops, they hadn't sprouted yet. And so it seems like Pharaoh and his officials might have been banking on that. Like, well, half our crops are gone, but we still got our wheat, so we'll still be able to make bread. We're going to be good. Well, the next plague takes care of this. The eighth plague. It's the plague of locusts. The locusts ate everything left. Chapter 10, verses 1 to 2. Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that, they may, so that, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and grandchildren, how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and how I performed my signs among them, and that you may know that I am Yahweh. And so Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh, and they demand that he let the people go in obedience to Yahweh once more. And this time, Pharaoh's own officials tell Pharaoh, wake up, right? The land is utterly destroyed. Let the people go. And after negotiating, again, he's trying to negotiate with Israel. He's like, well, just send the men. The ladies, the children, they can stay here. Send the men to go sacrifice and worship the Lord. But Moses and Aaron, they would not budge. And even though Israel is, I mean, Egypt is completely ruined, Pharaoh yet again hardens his heart. And the swarm of locusts descend and destroy everything in their path. A modern swarm of locusts, they say, is probably about 80 million 
locusts in a good-sized swarm, and they destroy everything for miles. Can you imagine how many locusts were in a, the swarm that destroyed the whole country of Egypt? I just can't imagine. Billions, billions at least, of locusts. Never before and never since had there been such a bad locust plague. And once again, you see Pharaoh admit, I've sinned, I did wrong, you can go. And then the plague stops, and once again, he hardens his heart. And now we come to one of the most important plagues, the ninth one. The most important, one of the key gods of Egypt was the god Amun-Re, the god, the sun god. And in the ninth plague, I mean, why would you worship the sun? Well, think, the sun gives light. It gives life to everything. And if you were just trying to pick something in creation to worship, that'd be a good place to start. And yet they're worshiping the sun, not the creator of the sun. And so God, in the ninth plague, the one true God who made the world, who made the sun, plunges Egypt into utter blackness. Now you remember, back in Genesis 1, maybe you remember how the story starts out. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was void and formless, and darkness was over the face of the waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So you had darkness in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The decreation of Egypt is almost completely, I mean, it's complete. Egypt is plunged back into pre-creation darkness. The chaos has returned. Why? Because of disobedience to the very words that gave creation its life. God's word brings life to creation in Genesis 1. Break it, and it comes unglued. That's the point. That's what God is teaching Pharaoh. That's what he's teaching all of Egypt. That's what he's teaching Israel. And that's what he's trying to teach the world. Pharaoh didn't have the power to make the sun rise. Only the creator of the sun had that kind of power. And so something somehow blots out the sun. I think it's a miracle. You know, some people say maybe it was an eclipse, but it was so dark, they couldn't even see where they were going. God miraculously blots out the sun. And now we come to the tenth and most horrible of all the plagues. And it's so significant, I just wanted to break it off as a separate uh, point this morning. The death of the firstborn sons. The death of the firstborn sons of Egypt. So, we can't understand the significance of this plague unless we start to understand biblically the significance of a firstborn son, both in the Bible, actually, and in the ancient world. So I'm going to start off helping us understand the significance by looking at Exodus 4 again. Back in Exodus 4, verses 22 to 23, we read this. God is speaking. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what Yahweh says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go that he may worship me. But you've refused to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. So here we see the whole nation of Israel is a corporate, as a nation, they're a corporate firstborn son of God. And that's really, really important for understanding what follows in the story. The nation is like God's son. But to see what, what's the significance of that, to see that significance, we have to understand um, 
the very beginning of the Bible story, back in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1 to 3, we see God's first firstborn son. His name is Adam, the first man. Adam is not God. This is so important. The firstborn son of God is not God. But Adam is the son of God. You get, we see that Luke, the gospel writer Luke actually talks about that in Luke chapter 3, verse 38. At the end of Jesus' genealogy, he says, the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam is the son of God. Created in God's image. To image and to reflect the worth of God and the character of God and to rule creation. Exercise dominion, rule over all of creation by how? Obeying God's word. Obeying God's word. And yet, what did this first, firstborn son, Adam, do? Well, he rebelled against God. He listened to Satan. And so Adam, this first, firstborn son of God, he was kicked outside the garden paradise of Eden and subjected, along with his wife Eve, to hard labor in this cursed and broken world of death. And in the story that follows in Genesis We've been going all along through seeing that there's two lines of humanity now that arise. Two different families, as it were. The descendants of the snake, of Satan, and the children of God. The seed of the snake, the descendants of the snake, who are they? Like Satan has offspring? Well, Jesus calls the Pharisees the offspring of the devil. Why? Because they were murderers like their father. They believed the lie like their father, the devil. So it's those who listen to the word of the snake and who try to be their own gods and who worship whatever they want in creation or make up their own rules of following God. Those are descendants of Satan. It's those who follow God and obey his word and find life by walking with him and trusting him. Those are the children of God. And so at the beginning of the Genesis story, We're also, we see these two lines set up, those who follow Satan, those who follow God. And then we're given a promise of restoration in Genesis 3, verse 15. One day, we've talked about this all along, there is coming a day when a descendant of Eve, a descendant of the woman, would defeat Satan and all his followers. This son, this descendant, he would be a faithful firstborn son. He would not fail like Adam, the first firstborn son, failed. The last Adam will not fail like the first. And if you've been following along, if you've read the book of Genesis, you might remember this, that we see different Adam-like figures arise. Noah, for example. We think Noah, coming off the ark, he's like a new Adam, coming into a new creation after the flood, and he gets a blessing from God, and is this new... Adam going to be faithful? Well, turn the next page and Noah's family falls apart. Noah is not a faithful firstborn son. He's not a faithful Adam. And now we see in our text today, God has raised up the nation of Israel as another Adam. This time it's not an individual. It's just a whole people that are going to be like his son. And like God's son, they're supposed to, like Adam, they're supposed to obey God's word and to know him. And if they obey God, he's going to bring them out of their hard labor in the cursed land of Egypt. And he's ultimately going to bring them to the promised land of rest, 
so long as they continue to obey his word. I'll say this another way. The journey, Israel's journey out of the harsh conditions in Egypt, their journey to the promised land is to be understood as Adam's journey back to Eden, the paradise of God. Adam gets kicked out of Eden for disobeying God's word. Israel, this corporate Adam, if they obey God's word, they're going to be led out of the hardship and toil and death in Egypt, and they're going to be led to the promised land. Stay tuned for the rest of the story. But now we come full circle back to the text this morning. In our passage, we have God's chosen firstborn son, Israel, being persecuted by a man who thinks he's the firstborn son of a god. And what's more, this man, this Pharaoh, he's actually thinking that as the image of the divine and as the firstborn ruler over all Egypt, he is a god. So just like Adam the first... Pharaoh is believing the lie of the serpent that he can be like God and call the shots and determine good from evil. And Pharaoh's not alone in this. Most of the kings of the ancient world, they claimed the same thing. They thought they were divine. It was a great way to control people, right? North Korea's trying this. Convince your subjects that you're God and they'll obey you. That you have a direct line with the deity in the sky. And that your children, your firstborn sons after you do as well. And so in our story today, we have a rebellious firstborn seed of Satan. He's claiming to be God. He's a murderer like his father the devil. And yet he's ruling over this world. But it's a terrible place. It's like an anti-Eden. It's a horrible land of work and ruthless toil and slavery. And he's brutally persecuting Yahweh's firstborn son, Adam. He's persecuting this new humanity that God has called out to follow him. And this murderous, Satan-like ruler, he's refusing to allow freedom for the people of God. And so in the final punishment, God is going to put Pharaoh's own firstborn son, the future God of Egypt, to death. And there's nothing that Pharaoh can do to stop it. And what's more, these firstborns in Egypt, they will all die. They represent the nation. Just like Adam represents humanity, just like Israel, the firstborn sons of Israel represent the nation of Israel, so these firstborn, they represent Egypt, and as a nation, Egypt will be judged. And yet, there's a problem in our passage. God's firstborn son, Israel, they're really sinful too. Okay? In this passage, there's no good guys and bad guys, really. Israel did not know who Yahweh was yet. They weren't really any different than the Egyptians in their hearts. They were worshiping the same gods. We see that at the end of Joshua, where Joshua is like, put away, Joshua 24, he, he tells the Israelites, put away the gods that you worshiped back when you were in Egypt. They're not worshiping the one true God. The only difference was that God had sworn to the Israelite forefather, Abraham, that the promised rescuer of the world, Jesus Christ, would come through Israel. And yet Israel has been, and as we keep reading, they will continue to be God's unfaithful son. And so what we see, what we will see next week, is that God makes a way for Israel to live when the judgment of death falls on the sin of Egypt. 
And the way that the Israelites are supposed to be spared from the death of their firstborn sons is by putting the blood of a firstborn lamb on the doorposts of all their houses. Now there's so much more that we're going to cover next week about the significance of the lamb's blood and this Passover lamb. But know this, that this lamb, this firstborn lamb that dies in the place of Israel's children... He points forward to the day that God would send his own firstborn son to rescue both his own people and all people of every nation who would put their faith in the sacrifice of Jesus. As Paul, the apostle, says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus, he's God's Passover lamb and he's all that the first Adam should have been and failed to be he's all that the corporate Adam the people of Israel all that they should have been but were not because of their hard hearts Jesus is God's faithful firstborn son and unlike Adam who claimed to be God but wasn't remember in the garden Adam falls to the temptation to Oh, that fruit's going to make me like God, knowing good from evil. I get to call the shots. I get to be like God. Unlike Adam, Jesus, he didn't have to claim to be God. He didn't have to make up the claim to be God. He was God. He was and is the only firstborn to be truly God. And he had to be, because only God can save us from the judgment we deserve for our sins. And Jesus, and the good news of the gospel is that Jesus, God's firstborn son, he was able to save us because he died on the cross as a lamb. He died in our place so that we can live forever with him one day. By Jesus' obedience, by the last Adam's obedience, Jesus, he won the way back into God's restored and renewed creation. Jesus the last Adam wins the way back to Eden, except it's a far better place than the old Eden. It's the new creation where righteousness dwells, where God himself will be with us and we will have rest. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for Jesus whose sacrifice opens the way for sinners to be right with you. Father, I ask that you would stir in all our hearts a desire to know you more. Lord, I ask that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that you would stir in their hearts a desire to know and be known by you as the giver of life. Lord, Jesus says this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I pray that we would press on to know the Lord. In your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.